Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. This week, uh, re-ruining my life by getting back into Destiny 2. And dragging me along with you. Uh, I'm Cameron <laughs> Lalana. My roommates this week have found out about my plans to make kefir, and they are threatening violence. Luckily, they don't listen to this podcast, or they would know now about the sauerkraut that I am currently fermenting in the cabinet. Absolute fools. <laughs> <laughs> Complete rubes. Not checking the bottom <laughs> the bottom of the cabinet. <laughs> That's a rookie mistake. <laughs> this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're going to be starting our Summer of Anna Karenina series, finally, uh, with the first part of Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. We're going to be reading one part every other week on the podcast, so if you're interested in joining the discussion on it, looking for a little bit more information on our book club that we're running on the side, or just some more goodies, go ahead and check out our Discord in the show notes or on our website for a link to join. And before we get into the show, we'd like to extend a big thank you to our newest patron, Irini. If you're interested in helping out the show, take a look at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. We have a lot of fun Patreon-only content and rewards, and it really helps the show out. If you're not interested in Patreon, but you would prefer to support us in a more, well, free way, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website. Yes, thank you for the updates. But before we get into the reading, Matt... What are you drinking today? I am kicking it way back because I had to do, I had to create a vending machine delight because I did, didn't have anything uh, in my fridge today. So I'm just drinking a, a vodka Sprite like a child. Well, well a child that could drink. <laughs> I, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> what, are you, what about you? Do you, got, do you have something good? Because I have something bad. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I don't know if you'd call this good, but so from campus brewing company which i believe i've had on this podcast before i have die hard is a christmas movie which is a <laughs> chocolate orange imperial porter uh and i know like a lot of these things we kind of try them so people can get an idea of, of craft beers out there but i realized today that like a lot of the beers i buy are either specific to my area or like this one out of production now because they're seasonal so good luck with that one <laughs> I, I do that sometimes too sometimes the chicago breweries like you can buy them other places because they're pretty big breweries uh but sometimes i get the ones that are like local to my town so there's like i i don't even they don't even come in like real packaging i don't think you can buy them <laughs> elsewhere i'm not even sure you're supposed to be able to buy them here but you know hey <laughs> every once in a while i'll buy beers that are like unmarked but i have like the local brewery on them and i kind of you know matt sometimes tags breweries and they very nicely respond or send us messages i'm very worried that if i ever do that with one of my beers i'm just gonna get a message from the brewery which is like what is that we've never produced that <laughs> <laughs> well <clears throat> enough about christmas movies let's move on to the greatest christmas movie in our hearts anna karenina so in in lieu of doing context at the beginning of the episode we're just going to kind of wrap in wherever there's relevant content as we kind of go along since this is going to be uh, an eight-part series at the very least so you know there's just no point to spend a significant amount of time on the context and honestly i, I would say it's it's more worthwhile to spend more time looking at the text than the context of it. Yes, so let's jump right into the summary. Uh, if you've if you watched the movies when we did that a couple episodes back, you'll already be familiar with everything that goes on in this particular episode. In fact, the movies, I could say the first half of both movies we watched cover about the first 100 pages mm -hmm. or so of Anna Karenina, which really, I'm excited to see what happens later if we're like already 
like easily 50 minutes into both movies at this point and only 100 pages in well as you can guess they largely cut out like 500 pages <laughs> worth of <laughs> worth of book i have to imagine 500 pages of levin watching steva eat and commenting on the like very particular brand of oysters and where they've come through them <laughs> you didn't enjoy that no i loved it it was great it made me really hungry for oysters and i don't really like oysters <laughs> so anna karenina obviously opens up with Anna's brother, Steva, waking up on his couch. Thinking back to the night before when his wife had discovered that he is, or was, cheating on her with their French governess. And he berates himself for when she finds out and he sees her and he knows that she knows he can do the only thing that Steva knows how to do, which is try to charm people. And it turns out smiling at your wife when she's found out you're cheating on her is not the move. Not the move. Take notes in case that was going to be your approach, you know, <laughs> just... <laughs> yeah. So we kind of go through his morning as, as his butler, Matt Vey, kind of helps him out, talks him through his day, etc., etc. He tries to go talk to his wife, Dolly, at this point, but she's not having it, uh, understandably, I would say. And, and when he's actually leaving his, his wife's bedroom, he thinks, uh, and this is very characteristic of Steva, it's true it's bad, her having been a governess in our house. That's bad. There's something common, vulgar in making love to one's governess. But what a but governess. What a governess. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so. i remember that line because i marked it too yeah so this is just this is steve's character in like two sentences so he is like i don't know what to do and he gets a letter which makes him really happy because anna is coming and he's hoping that she's gonna fix everything for him because he clearly can't <laughs> for, for all of his charm and, and as we quickly learn for all of his charm and how, how he's liked in society and how everyone loves steve it's kind of hard to actually like Steve if you're married to him. <laughs> he he's not yeah. a really personal guy. He's he's somewhat um in another universe you probably could have written um a certain form of American psycho about Steve. Uh, we go through a whole psycho uh, a whole paragraph or paragraph after paragraph of him, you know, engaging in things basically only so he can really engage with society better and that he he reads three liberal papers every day then denies ever reading Moscow papers because they're trash to everyone and you know. <laughs> he's a character to say the least. Yeah, he's entertaining, but you can clearly see that he's... Um, well, to your point that you made in our Anna Karenin episode, sometimes the evil characters aren't... Well, often evil mm -hmm. characters aren't bad people. Well, he's kind of a bad person, but they're not people that are hard to be around. They're not They're not malicious, always. Mm -hmm. Even, despite how, how bad he is throughout the book, I don't think you can usually attribute the characteristic malicious to Steva. No. Except for maybe his son, who is very conscious that he loves less than his daughter. But he does try not to show it too much. But he does well, know but that's how he sees the world is like, you know, he knows that these things are true. But at the same time, what what is he supposed to do about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just the way things are. It's not his fault. His wife has lost her good looks. His wife, that is, <laughs> you know, the mother of his children. I mean, what, what is he supposed to do? What options does he have? Exactly. Yeah. So as he goes on about his day getting to leave his house and leave all his worries behind, he leaves behind Dolly, who thinks upon the fact that she hates his good nature. Everyone likes him and loves him for this nature, but it's that very good nature that she has come to hate. Fair. So at work, uh, Steve goes about, he begins to make decisions. He's in meetings all day, classic upper management, until finally when lunch comes about and they decide, actually, we can wait. We need to eat first, the, the important thing for our firm. It is announced that someone's been waiting for him, and he goes out to see his disreputable friends, as he likes to call them, and he sees his... A friend who would actually, uh, and characteristically not described as disreputable, ironically, uh, Levin, or Constantine Levin. 
Eleven, who he sees, is now wearing a, a coat in the French style. He uh, tells him, oh, you're in a new phase again, to which Levin blushes, and he brings him into his office so they can chat. It's been quite a while since I've seen each other. In this process, we jump back into Levin's family history, and we find out a lot more about the, the intertwined history of, of, of Constantine Levin's family and the Sherbatsky family. And the Sherbatsky family, of course, uh, contains Dolly, um, Oblonsky or Steve's wife. It contains a another sister who's not really important for the story, and then it contains Kitty, who is the uh, point of this conversation, this visit, really, for Levin to Steva. Steva asks Levin, "Where have you been?" Levin kind of reflects on the fact that he, you know, even though he he's known Kitty ever since she was a kid, which I did not realize how much of an age difference there was between Levin and Kitty. Now that I know that they're like. 13 years apart it makes it a little bit ickier as i'm going through this which is not tolstoy's intent but mm, can't stop noticing that every time he notes that he remembers when she was a kid wait one second let me let me pull up a fact oh boy okay i, I had to pause to look up the, the exact dates okay but, uh, tolstoy at the age of 34 married his wife who was 18 the family whose daughter he, he was courting thought that he was going to marry uh, her older sister and there was a little bit of an eyebrow raise when he, when he didn't <laughs> To say the least. Yikes. Okay. Well, <clears throat> seeing more and more parallels between Levin and Tolstoy, which I guess is intentional. Yeah, it's his autobiographical character, basically. Yes. Yeah, so Levin has been gone for a couple months because he was on the verge of, of proposing to Kitty after her brother's death. He was friends with her brother. He dies. That becomes the catalyst for him being like, you know what? I think I'm in love with Kitty after being in love with Dolly and the other sister until they both got <laughs> married. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not looking good for Levin the more facts I learn about this whole situation <laughs> um, looking around at all his, all his compatriots who went to college with he realizes I have I have friends who I went to school with who are now captains or professors or whatever I am just running a farm and he feels really insecure and he disappears for two months before returning back to Moscow determined to ask Kitty to marry him so after leaving this meeting with Steva Levin goes to see his, his stepbrother who is a sort of philosophy professor, and when he comes, he's having a debate with another professor who's come all the way across Russia to debate over a particular point that was written in a recent article. They mostly ignore him as they're having their conversation, until finally Levin breaks in with a kind of simple observation that the two are really kind of like going in circles with these very technical terms, and he asks a very direct question, and the professor kind of looks at him like, it's not really a question worth asking before ignoring him and going back to the conversation. And I was going to ask you, is that just me reading into it, or is this supposed to be kind of like, it's supposed to feel really circular? He's making fun of philosophy. He's making fun of intellectuals. That's part of the spiritual and intellectual journey that Levin will go on mm. throughout the story. Right, because he still respects him at this point. Yeah, I mean, well, he's, I guess really the point of Levin is we shall come to see even by the end of the first part what he's really getting at is that a simple life can be just as fulfilling or more fulfilling than something complex and really high-minded and that can be applied to almost every aspect of life including like education and philosophy and whatnot right but yeah it's supposed to it's supposed to be kind of ridiculous that makes sense after a while they they chat they talk about levin's what he's been doing, how he's left the city or the local council that he was on because he just couldn't see a way that it really mattered whatsoever. And he, his brother kind of chastises him for that before they go on to kind of talk about their uh, mutual brother, Nikolai, who they don't really talk about because he's a little, he's a little, little off the chain before Levin decides it's time to go propose to an 18 year old and he leaves and he goes to the skate park where Kitty is. And he is such a good skater, it turns out, that even though he's been gone for quite a while, the attendants immediately recognize him when he puts on his skates, which is frightening to me. I, I stop going to coffee places if the people, like, 
know my order. Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine someone like knowing my skills in skating. But also, I guess that speaks to the fact that Levin, side note, really good skater. Like, incredible. Or you're an aristocrat and there's only so many. One of the two. <laughs> That's fair. Well, there's so many aristocrats in Russia. But fair, fair point. So Levin goes out to skate with Kitty. They have a nice chat. She kind of was like, wow, it, it's good to see you again. And this is actually... I wanted to say that this scene is really interesting to me because this is one of the major points where I really began to see the book really differently from the movie because in the movie, a lot of characters react with surprise to a lot of events, whereas in the book, most characters are, are pretty intelligent. They are very perceptive. And up even before Eleven really gets to the point, we kind of jump into Kitty's points of view occasionally and she kind of is like, the gears in her head are turning and she's already thinking like, oh, I know why he's here. Please, please don't ask. Please don't ask me. Until she finally says, yeah, yeah, are you going to be here long? And he says, well, that really depends on you. And at that point, she's like, all right, I'm out. And she just skates off. And Levin, to contain his, his embarrassment, goes and does a trick on the ice, which, yeah, that's fair. Oh, no, I just remembered. I have to go. To... Oh, I really have a thing at right now. <laughs> <laughs> and then after Levin, very, very embarrassed, intends to kind of leave, but is invited to a little event that the Shabratskis are having this night. So he leaves and he gets ready to go to dinner with Steva. Steva takes Levin to this restaurant, which he owes some money to, so he obviously feels it would be wrong to avoid it. <laughs> and then get, they get sat down at this nice, nice table. The The waiter is very helpful. They're going through all the foods. It's Steva is very, very particular about everything they're ordering. Very particular about the oysters, about the cheeses, the wines, which contrasts with Levin, who just wants uh, cabbage soup and kasha. Fair enough. Reading the scene, I was both hungry for oysters and kasha. Strange combo, but... Really? Well, kasha, too? I don't know. There's something about, like, I just read cabbage soup and kasha, and I was just like, that would be good right now. Maybe it was just because I was mm. hungry at the time, and I was just... I would have taken anything, <laughs> but it sounded good. <laughs> Levin introduces what Steva basically already knows, that he's here to try to ask Kitty to marry him, and, and Steva is clapping him in the back, and he's like, yeah, you've got the prince in your court... You know, people think you're a good match. Kitty's totally going to marry you. And then in the next chapter that comes with the big, but there's this other dude, Vronsky, who's really rich and he's super well-respected. And also, he's really handsome, but I think you've got a good chance against him. <laughs> he has been courting <laughs> Kitty for the whole time you've been gone and she seems very receptive, but I think you've got a good chance. Seems promising. <laughs> yeah, this does not make Levin feel great, as you might imagine. At this point, Steva, who obviously can't keep talking about Levin this whole time, has to go into his thing with Dolly, and he begins to he begins to debate with Levin over, what should I do if I, like, I have just have such love to give, basically, and, you know, is it really fair to really contain that within myself? And then Levin says, quite simply, well, if I just had a good dinner, I wouldn't go eat a roll at a bakery afterwards. And then Steva characteristically says, but what if it's a really good roll? Basically, how that whole conversation goes, but in circles. What if you just had finished making up with your other role, but then there was another really good role? What are you supposed to do? <laughs> I don't know what to do with the role. Can someone tell me? <laughs> yeah, also, it turns out in the course of the conversation, Levin's pretty misogynistic. He has a lot to say about fallen women. Uh, using mm -hmm. some, using a French woman who works in the restaurant as an example of fallen woman, I guess because she wears makeup and is showing off good customer service by by being friendly with, with everyone who comes in. Yeah, and I guess it's you can probably infer why Steve has been banned from bakeries. <laughs> <laughs> That's not canon, but it should be. <laughs> That's canon in my head now. It's my head canon. 
When I rewrite my fan fiction of Anna Karenina, <laughs> Steve will be banned from bakeries. Uh, at this point, Steve actually gets a pretty good zinger in at Levin, and he tells him, You want a man's work, too, always to have a defined aim, in love, and family, like always to be undivided. And that's not how it is. All the variety, all the charm, all the beauty of life is made up of light and shadow. Now, of course, this is a defense of him cheating on his wife. But that being said, it is. Okay. <laughs> okay. Can I break in here? Okay. All right. This is for every single bookstagrammer that I see out there. Like, just finished Anna Karenina. Uh, all life is made of beauty and shadow. <laughs> Hashtag Leo Tolstoy. <laughs> Hashtag Anna Karenina. Like, I am going to die if I see another person post that quote out of context. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> it's an interesting challenge of of Levin's ideology, but also it is a defense of adultery. <laughs> and I don't I don't want to see it anymore. <laughs> Leave it out of your Instagram post, please. <laughs> so after this dinner, we join Kitty as she gets ready for the event tonight. And she thinks about Levin and Vronsky, and she knows why Levin's going to come tonight. And she thinks, like, I kind of feel bad, but with Vronsky, I have such a good image of the future. And with Levin, it just feels misty. I don't see anything for myself there. And, and it's announced that Levin's come early. And again, when I say the characters are perceptive, when she hears that Levin's come early, she immediately knows why he's come. And when he comes in to propose to her, she shuts him down pretty fast. And He's trying to beat a hasty retreat when everyone else starts showing up. So he's got to stay, which is awkward, you know, for all of us who've been in that situation. We all understand. Yeah, when you get your marriage proposal <laughs> shot down and then you got to stay for the, for the dinner. Yeah. Uh, with the other guy who's courting the person you just proposed to, that's it's not good. You hate when that happens. You really do. <laughs> at this point, other people begin to talk to Levin. Even one uh, one woman, Countess, I'm going to say this, I'm not going to say Nordstrom, Countess Nordston, not Nordstrom. <laughs> Countess Nordstrom Rack <laughs> um, with her affordable selection of men's ties. Um, Countess Nordstrom begins to make fun of Levin. They always, they hate each other so much they have a very genial relationship. <laughs> and she kids him about coming back to their, quote, corrupt Babylon until Vronsky arrives. And they keep talking and very awkward even you you're there with the the woman you've tried to propose to her suitor is here this woman you hate's here and you're all stuck in a four-way conversation which turns to spiritualism you hate when that happens really do yeah levin keeps trying to be like this is stupid and then vronsky starts attacking him on the topic of electricity which he says is similar to spiritualism uh <laughs> to which levin it does not take kindly like you Levin's hard because, like, you know, sometimes you want to root for him, and then other times you're like, I would not invite you to my dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Vronsky tries to keep it light, but Levin, Levin's really getting heated over this electricity thing. <laughs> uh, which Kitty's dad is nearby, and he heartily approves of, of Levin getting really angry over electricity. A man of our era. A man for our time. A hero of our time. If <laughs> yeah, will. if you will. If you will. And I will. <laughs> After the evening, we follow Kitty for a while. She thinks about it and she feels really bad about shooting Levin, shooting Levin down, but she feels ultimately that she's made the right choice. And her mother agrees. Her mother is super happy that she has said no to Levin because her mother really likes Vronsky. Well, her family's the really old, like, Moscow aristocrat type, so they're really going for just pure matchmaking potential. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So when, when Kitty is, like, kind of praying and, and, like, I hope I made the right decision as she's going to bed, her mother is reflecting on... How tough marriage is today. All these silly things like girls wanting to, you know, choose who they get married to, which obviously is an untenable system, which would never work in the English style. And, you know, the youth won't accept the, the French style of parents having all the control, although she would like that. So now they're, they're in this 
a Russian style of... I'm Actually, as she describes the Russian style, it sounds fundamentally the same as the French style, so I'm not really certain what she's <laughs> mad about, but Levin could marry her daughter, so I guess that's all that really matters to her. <laughs> that's the main problem with marriage today, the fact that Levin's, the Levin's here. It's the worst, you know? Yeah, really cannot emphasize how much she does not like Levin. Opposite, her husband, who really likes Levin, they have a fight about it, you know, eventually... They break it off, go their own ways, and she goes to bed saying the same prayer that Kitty is saying about the future. Vronsky, at the same time, uh, is, as as everyone is hoping for him to marry Kitty, thinking about how much he's definitely not going to marry Kitty. How <laughs> <laughs> about he's really, he's just enjoying he's enjoying life, and, and that's totally far from his mind. I think it's ridiculous that anyone could even expect him to marry Kitty at this point. And he thinks, I should go, I should go to a party before thinking, no, I'm really tired. And, you know, that's why I like going... That's what I like about going to the Shcherbatskys. They make me feel like a better person. And so instead of going out and drinking with my buds, I'm going to go to bed. So the next day, Vronsky meets Steva at the train station. They're both waiting for people. Vronsky is waiting for his mother. Steva is waiting for Anna. Uh, and the train arrives. Anna gets out. She passes Vronsky. They don't recognize each other, although there's kind of like an electric moment as they can't stop looking at each other as they're passing by, and Vronsky notes it's really not her beauty. There's just something about her character, their metaphysical nature that I just can't look away from. <laughs> Eventually, as it goes on, they get reacquainted as Steva comes up towards the train. They all chat until a, a guard at the back of a train gets run over. He didn't hear the order. Everyone's saying it's awful, it's terrible, and Anna says, isn't there something anyone can do? And Vronsky, who immediately, without thinking about it, jumps out of the carriage and goes to give money to the guard's family. Well, without thinking about it, or maybe thinking about what Anna was thinking about. <laughs> Vronsky, without it being described what he's thinking about it, immediately yeah. jumps off and goes to give money to the guard's family. <laughs> so at this point, they, they, they'll go their separate ways, and Anna goes with Steva to go gaslight Dolly into not leaving Steva. Yep. The next chapter is just, uh, you could go into the detail of Anna and Dolly's conversation, but you can shorten it down to Anna just straight up gaslights Dolly into being like, really, it's worse for Steva. He feels so bad. You should stay with him. And Dolly coming around to, I guess I have to do it for, for my family. I mean, what else are you going to do? What, what else can <laughs> you do? <laughs> that evening, Kitty joins her sister at dinner. They, they all have a good time, uh, except for the moment that where Anna is kind of like leaving and she sees Vronsky, who's at the front door, who's there to inquire about things. They have this moment where they see each other and Vronsky's like, actually... I'm going to go, and he leaves, which seems weird to everyone. Oh, that should have been a normal thing. There's just something that they can't help but feel is off here. And this state of affairs continues until later in the week when Kitty has her ball. And this is going to be her moment when she is debuted to Moscow society. This is her moment, and she enters feeling perfect. Everything that she's done for this is completely in place. Everyone is as they should be. Everything she's wearing is nothing's tearing. Everything is absolutely amazing. For the first couple dances, everything is going great. She's got suitors offering... Uh, asking to join Dance the Quadrille with her, and eventually she runs into Vronsky, who has been courting her for quite a while, and she goes up to him and is, is chatting with him, and she happens to notice that he's a little, little distracted, and which she's kind of confused by until she sees what Vronsky's looking at, and he's just hardcore staring at Anna across the room. And as she takes him into her arms to try to dance with him, she looks up at him with a, a look of love to indicate him that she feels really close to him in this moment, and she, for years afterwards, will not forget that he just looks at her and is completely dead-eyed. <laughs> um, which, oof. Oof on that one. The rest of the evening does not go well for her. She keeps turning on everyone to dance the mazurka with, with Vronsky, who then chooses to dance it with Anna instead. 
night ruined. It's happened to all of us. Mm-hmm. I feel you, Kitty. And and the next day, everyone decides we got to get out of town. Levin's like, I feel terrible. I'm going to go back to the country. Get out of town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Always the answer to everything when things go wrong. Uh, he goes to see his, his brother, who is dying and also a dick, but also kind of a communist (laughs) that's what you need to know really yeah and and levin goes back to the country being like you know i think my brother's wrong about his economic theories but he's not wrong in the way he sees the troubles of our era there's obviously a lot of things a lot of things wrong and when he diagnoses them i agree and he thinks i'm i've I've got all these good ideas this is what i'm gonna do to fix myself i'm gonna feel great but as soon as he gets home he suddenly feels the weight of the world back on him and like he can't actually do it which unironically this time i actually really feel that that's (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being on a long ride home and, and realizing everything you need to do to fix your life and then not doing it, relatable. Well, that's also basically the, the tale of Tolstoy's life: <laughs> uh, wanting to do things better and then not doing it, and then <laughs> chastising yourself in your journal. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Anna is like, "I gotta get out of town. I I feel like I totally screwed up Kitty's ball. She's gonna be mad at me now." And Dolly, for her part, is feeling a little bit guiltily good about this, that she sees Anna's weaknesses now, even though she says she still loves her, but it's good to know that she's human too, basically. Anna gets out of town, and she's on the train back to Petersburg, and she feels great. She can't really focus, and she's getting all this kind of nervous energy, but it's fine. She's out. And she's doing the weird thing with a knife. Yeah, she's <laughs> she's pressing a knife up to the window, then to her cheek. Maybe it's worth briefly explaining why she has a knife. <laughs> I actually I didn't it was a book knife I don't entirely understand that yeah I didn't understand it until somebody older than me explained it to me which is the way that books used to be printed was that you know they're printed on larger pieces of paper and then folded and basically to kind of turn them you would have to cut them huh for new books interesting uh and so that's why old-timey people and old-timey books you would have to have like a a paper knife to uh, to read them for the first time. That is very interesting. I, I, I enjoy that knowledge. Thank you. The more you know. <laughs> Along the way, she gets out of the train because she's got so much nervous energy. She can hardly read. She always she has a tendency to, to imagine herself in all those situations. So already feeling nervous and, and seeing this, it just feels like, God, I got I to gotta get out of here. So she steps off the train for some air. And surprise, surprise, like a stalker, Vronsky is there. And <laughs> she's not entirely opposed to it, she notes in her mind. But... Still doesn't feel great about it, so she kind of says, oh, if you're a good man, you'll forget all about this, and she gets back on the train, and he keeps staring at her. Uh, <laughs> uh, not looking good for Vronsky at this point in the book in terms of him not being a creep, but... Uh, <laughs> no, sir. No, sir. They get to Moscow the next morning, and Anna gets out and sees her husband, Alexei Karenin. He comes up and is like, wow, your husband's here to greet you. Isn't that great? And she's like, your ears look funny. How's Syriosha? <laughs> 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 yeah, it's the perfect demeanor to read it in. <laughs> I would love to see that replaced in the movies with with your rendition. <laughs> I want to say that's just like a weird one-off thing, but she keeps thinking about how much she doesn't like how much his ears look, and then we'll come back to that. That's perhaps one of the more famous lines from this from this part. Interesting. Okay, I want to get back into that mm-hmm. then. Uh, and Vronsky, mm-hmm. who obviously can't let things lie, gets out and sees Karenin go up to Anna and is like, "Huh, so that's her husband. She gets married, I guess." And then goes up to talk to them. Uh, Krennin, who's like happy to see his wife, is like, buzz off. I'm trying to chat with my wife. And Vronsky's like, can I come see you at your house? I want to talk to you about your legislation. And he's like, I guess come on Monday, whatever. And at that point, he and Anna go home. 
and and Anna's like, okay, it's it's over now. And she feels almost a weird sense of disappointment. But she goes back to her regular life. She sees her son. She is also disappointed in her son a little bit. Um, <laughs> she goes to meet with other people in, in, in Petersburg society. And, and Vronsky does the same thing. He goes to see his friends who are taking care of his affairs in Petersburg. His affairs aren't going great. But, you know, he's not... <laughs> He's 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 above water now, and that's you know he's rich, so whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. He can he'll throw some money at the problem, and that's more or less where we we leave part one of Anna Karenina with them both in Petersburg tending to their own affairs. Heck yeah! Heck yeah, brother! Heck yeah, brother! We did it. <laughs> part one, Anna Karenina. What'd you think? I okay. So I I kind of already harped on this, but compared to the movies, and that was my only frame of reference for this before coming in and seeing the way that Tolstoy writes the characters is super compelling. Because they're all they're all perceptive, they're all intelligent, and for the most part, they are intelligent enough. When something's going on, they almost always kind of catch up. Kitty catching up to Levin's intent every time. Anna having very complex feelings about Vronsky. It it really adds a lot to be able to see their inner life rather than as it's it's often expressed as them kind of like staring off in the movies of like thinking, obviously, but being able to follow their inner thoughts really for yep. me brings a lot. To more to the characters and being able to, to follow them and when we were when we were reading last week that um Chekhov had kind of fallen in love with Anna and, and the way that she's described I related to Anna a lot like the way that mm-hmm. he describes Anna of being having a hard time reading books because she just keeps imagining herself in those situations I get that I've, I've had to stop reading books because I've like I'll do that and I'll get too excited and I'm like wow what if I was there and <laughs> like thinking through that and that she yeah. as a character is someone that I can she feels so real and like the kind of intricate details that Tolstoy goes through in her thoughts and actions. It's it's inter- it's an interesting narratorial style and it's been written about and people have theorized about it and whatnot. But you get a really interesting mix actually because you you get both internal life and characters' thoughts in their own heads. But then Tolstoy sometimes steps back and gives you the wider third person. Sometimes you get a limited view of them. Sometimes you get something that's in their voice, but third person. And so you get like an interesting thing to try and dissect when you're thinking about like, who is the narrator in this situation? Because Tolstoy does that really well. Right. Uh, he slips narrators in and out. It's very fluid sometimes. Yeah, you'll spend an entire scene with Levin and then just like one paragraph with Kitty, basically giving you a counter perspective on what it's like for her to experience this. And even sometimes mm-hmm. flipping what you think is going on, not on its head, but adding a dimension to it, which is definitely not there in another character's perspective. Yeah, and not even just that. Sometimes within the same within the same scene itself, um, you, you you think you're getting kind of a a third person omniscient overview, like a neutral sort of thing. Uh, for instance, the very first chapter with Steva being described that you know it's you know it's not his fault, and how could how could his wife uh, feel this way? And the paragraph ends with, it had turned out quite the other way uh, with <laughs> her being upset with him. And it's like, well, yeah, of course it had turned out quite the other way. One thing I did not expect about getting into it was that it's really, and you don't usually associate this with Russian literature, but very kind of fun. The characters are mm-hmm. all alive. And Steva, complex character, complex character, bad husband, bad father. Uh <laughs> Yes, uh, but very fun to be around you. You. This is something I notice with authors that they they struggle that they have an idea of who that character is in their mind, but then they struggle to translate that to the page. So sometimes they have to tell you like, "Wow, this person was so charismatic," and then they introduce them, and it's like, "Wow, they've got the charisma of a paper bag." <laughs> Everyone else in this universe must be really awful with uh, with their EQ. But Steva, who is said to be well liked, he's funny. He, that's how he's demonstrated. He is a well like. If I was talking to Steva, I'd be like, "Wow, this is a really funny guy. I enjoy being in his presence." And the more you're with him, the more you start might start to realize, like, "Wow, that's some interesting things you're saying about like your wife, the mother of your kids, and also your kids mm-hmm. too." While you're at it, 
And it's <laughs> it's it's really an intricate layer, and it's like really masterfully done in the way that it's not just said, but really demonstrated in a way that you feel reading it. Yeah, I mean, I like Steve is probably my one of my favorite characters, even though I think he's terrible. Yeah, just to kind of think through, there's a lot of interesting things about Steve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether or not Steva is evil is kind of up to your personal conception of what you think evil is. But it's worth noting the main characteristic where you could derive that from is Steva just he forgets. He's very whether it's like an intentional forget forgetfulness or not. That's kind of up for debate. But it's he almost has this quality where he's like in a dream in a sense. And for, for instance, there's, you know, you talked about the scene with Levin where he's like, yeah, you should totally marry Kitty. She obviously wants to marry you. You're like, you're totally fine. And then like almost the very next scene, he's going, uh, he's going to Vronsky and he's like, oh yeah, you should totally marry Kitty. I mean, I don't see what the problem would be. <laughs> and he's not being malicious. He just in that moment forgets. Yeah. He's only in, he only has the ability to comprehend that one moment and he wants you to like him in that moment. So we'll do whatever it takes for you to do that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting to compare and contrast families because this is one thing that Tolstoy is known for being exceptionally good at is a lot of times when authors write families, they'll give them the same last name and you'll be like, okay, they're associated because they are, because they have just, you know, the name. Right. Tolstoy does something a little bit, a little bit different in that families usually have like shared characteristics. And that for that reason, that's why Levin, it's noted, he really, it's not that he doesn't love Kitty. It's that he loves the whole family and he'll take, <laughs> take what he can get. <laughs> and in, in, in the same vein, there's definitely some similarities people have pointed out between Steva and Anna. The, as you noted, the gaslighting of Dolly into believing that, you know, what are you going to do? Your husband's cheating on you, but he still loves you. And one of the, the characteristics that has been written about between Anna and Dolly, there's, you know, as you mentioned, the line where Anna is completely gaslighting Dolly and it's an interesting break in in parentheses when she's describing Anna was talking with Steva and you know how he was feeling so bad and whatnot and Anna says and what touched me most and then it breaks in in parentheses and here Anna guessed what would touch Dolly most uh, <laughs> the narrator really cueing you to notice that you know <laughs> she's not really helping the situation in the way that she should uh, she's really an enabler for Steva in this part. Right. Because in this in this very scene, she's like, you really have to look at him. He's so humiliated. You've got to feel sorry for him. Look at all the things he's tortured by, by the fact that he's humiliated himself, his wife, his kids. And then in the next sentence, Dolly's like, I guess it is bad. It's like maybe worse for the guilty than the innocent in this situation. And like, no, it's not. You're just... <laughs> uh you've just been convinced that but yeah it's it's it is interesting i I really like that zoom in and zoom out that happens continuously through the story which no character is really exempt from being examined like that no no it's not even just a zoom in and zoom out it's just like it's all meshed together at Mm -hmm. once Mm -hmm. uh, which creates a fascinating effect uh but do you do you want to talk about the ears go for it go for the ears so the ears passage really i think depends on how you view the novel I would say there are a lot of different interpretations of it. There's kind of a, I, I guess I would say most people fall into the pro-Anna camp and they sympathize with her. Uh, some people do not, at least at this point, kind of in the story. The one thing that's worth mentioning is that Anna really hasn't done much after having her baby, Serioja. She hasn't really left him uh, and he's 
definitely he's like what, six or seven it's a couple years old he's like fairly old so she's kind of just been housebound i guess for a long time and she's clearly established some sort of routine while doing this and this trip is a catalyst to break that routine and so that's that kind of sets the stage for what will be obviously the drama of the story the anna vronsky karenin triangle that begins to emerge mm. and so this problem it doesn't emerge at the ears passage comes a little bit earlier on the train when she's convincing herself that she didn't do anything wrong while she was you know at the ball in moscow which i i think if you have to try to convince yourself you didn't do anything wrong there's uh, a non-zero chance that you in fact have done something wrong <laughs> um but the ears line is one of the most interesting and complex passages of the book i think and that is when she comes home and sees her husband, she thinks, wow, his ears are like, I don't like them. I don't like the way he looks. And I don't remember him looking like this. Uh, and she even sees it in his eyes. She says an unpleasant sensation gripped at her heart when she met his obstinate and weary glance as though she had expected to see him different. And so there's, there's, there's two schools, I guess, of thought on this broadly. One is that, wow, she broke her routine. She got to see somebody her own age who was attractive. And now she goes back to her old crusty husband and doesn't like him anymore. And then there is the 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 other one, which I think could mostly be ascribed to Gary Saul Morrison in his book, which is a very specific one. Uh, and that is that Anna is actually schooling herself to dislike her husband. She's being dishonest to herself. Starting here, and well, starting earlier, as she's convincing herself that she did nothing wrong, and this continues, this untruthfulness to herself continues throughout the book, which, it's very interesting book. I'm not sure I agree <laughs> with all the points, but... Um, Sounds like a man who's insecure about his ears. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's there's a lot to unpack on, on that book. It does sound interesting. It is. I tend to fall in, in the pro Anna camp for the fact that in the second to last chapter, chapter 33... Tolstoy gives you his version of, of a sex scene, which I don't like. I find it uncomfortable. Uh, I, it's, um, let's see. So Anna's, Anna's sitting uh, in her room. She's going over, well, she's going back to her room. She's thinking about, about Vronsky and, you know, she's again coming back to the to his ears. Why do his ears stick out so strangely to Karenin's ears, that is? And she's going back and forth between the two of them. And, and Karenin breaks her train of thought and as he, he comes in, she heard the sound of measured steps in slippers, which is a bit of a motif, Corinne, in his slippers. And he comes in washed and combed with the book under his arm. It's time, it's time, said he with a special smile. And he went into their bedroom. So he's clearly insinuating it's time to have sex. And then in her head, Anna goes, when she looks at her husband, she recalls Vronsky looking at her husband. So she's constantly projecting Vronsky onto her current situation. And... At the end of the chapter, she says, undressing, she went into the bedroom, but her face had shown none of the eagerness or animation or liveliness, which during her stay in Moscow had fairly flashed from her eyes and her smile, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of saying that, you know, she's <laughs> she's definitely not into Karenin at, at this point. I personally find Karenin and his special smile really creepy. I don't like it. <laughs> In my copy, it says meaningful smile, which is far less creepy, but the introduction of it's time, it's time is still pretty bad. I had to go into the Russian copy to ch to check. There are a few words that are different. The one being the, the smile, it's 
special mm. smile, and the other one that's the look in her eyes is translated as eagerness, which I think implies something sexual, which it's not always. Mm-hmm. Something more like animation or liveliness. Interesting. Okay. So those are a couple ones that are like fairly key passages. So it's it's good to know. Good to know. Good to good to check. <laughs> good to know if you can. Good to check. I enjoy the way which Tolstoy sets up a lot of complexity, except for the it's time, it's time. That one is oof, my dude. That's definitely indicative I of someone it. who's never had to like experience any any um any situation where he's had to induce someone sexually that was he wasn't married to. Otherwise he would know that it's time, it's time is never acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> it's also the same smile that he gives her after she gets back. Yeah. Uh, from Moscow on the train. And some people have interpreted it as, oh, he missed his wife. And I thought, no, he squeezed her hand and gave her his special <laughs> smile. I think he's thinking about having sex with her. I don't think. Yeah. I, I don't really think he missed her that much, but who's to say? Who is to say? Who's to say? <laughs> I guess me. Yeah. <laughs> this is my this is my land. <laughs> Matt is the arbiter of sexual attraction and anacrine. <laughs> <laughs> right i'm glad to have the arbiter for the rest of this journey it's going to be really important as we go forward that's right i wouldn't make you do this alone <laughs> i think it's interesting i know we don't have a ton of time left but i think it's interesting the characters who get a lot of time to to have their perspective and characters who get very little of their perspective mm-hmm. because i mean for the most part we're following anna and levin occasionally steva and then you kind of break into people like dolly or kitty and even somewhat vronsky but Really, I did not notice that much of Vronsky's perspective, except for when he's deciding what to do. Like, Karenin and Vronsky are, up to this point, somewhat mysterious, because you really don't get that perspective, their perspective uh, as much as you get everyone else's, which is yeah. interesting. I guess it sets up part of the conflict in that they're just characters you don't understand as well um, as you get into this. Yeah, that's part of it. I think the, the other part of it is the book really would have been too long if Tolstoy had already had done that. But what's what's most interesting from that is the fact that you get Anna and Levin are really your primary characters that you get the world filtered through. For the majority of the book, there are parts where, you know, of course, there are other characters and whatnot. But you get these two characters who aren't really immediately connected in any sort of way. I mean, there's kind of this weird, like, familial... <laughs> will they or won't they uh kind of happening with levin but it's not like anna and levin are friends and so this has set up really a, a difficult thing for tolstoy scholars and even his contemporaries when they read the book and they're like why did you write it like this <laughs> like you wrote two books mr tolstoy count tolstoy uh, why didn't you just publish them like that? And Tolstoy said, no, you're missing you're missing it. You're missing the labyrinth of linkages, as he called it. And so that's what will be important to pay attention to as we start to go through the rest of the parts is how are the two primary plot lines linked? What themes, motifs, uh, interactions are really there connecting them? Because you only get maybe one interaction towards the end of the book between Levin and Anna, and it's not super consequential, comparatively. Right. So something interesting, put it out there, something to think about. Something something to think about as we go into future episodes. But for now, I think we're approaching the edge of what is acceptable. But before we totally wrap up, Matt, and I've got a fun little uh, remix here for you, on a scale of one to Steva, how drunk are you? I don't think I'm that drunk because I am instead invigorated with the spirits of talking about Anna Karenina because I <laughs> wanted to talk about it for so long on the podcast, but we had to figure out a format that worked for it. Mm. And you know what? We're going to give it a full eight-parter. <laughs> We're doing it. We're contributing a full 
what is at this point almost half of the episodes in our ovra to Anna Karenina. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be a third right. at that point when we're done, but... So like a three or a four. Yeah, what about you? That's fair. So this uh, Imperial Porter, as you might guess, is pretty high in alcohol mm-hmm. content, almost 14%. So I'm there. I'm like a solid six or seven. That's pretty good. I'm yeah. I'm happy for you. Me too. Me too. This has been good. <laughs> <laughs> it won't be good for me when I'm editing later and have to edit out some of those raunchy jokes, but, you know, <laughs> as it goes. Don't make good bumpers. <laughs> okay, well, I know that we're in the middle of our summer of Anna Karenina, but next week, we're actually reading something else, Matt. What are we reading next week? So as I mentioned, we're doing Anna Karenina only every other week, just in case you happen to not be that interested in Anna Karenina for whatever earthly reason. So you'll get a break during our off weeks. And next week, we're going to be turning to Andrei Sinyavsky and the short story Pence. Uh, be sure to listen in as we continue to explore uh, some of the weirdest sex scenes ever written in world literature. Continuing our grand tradition from Sankhya on to, I guess, now Anna Karenina, now that you pointed that out to me, I didn't notice before. And finally, Fkens, <laughs> or Hans, I guess. P-K-H-E-N-T-Z. You decide. <laughs> <laughs> I literally couldn't find a translation for that, but okay, I'm sure it exists. (laughs) Well, before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We've got Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Irini, Lou, Gary, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland. Podcasting isn't free, and grad school pays Monopoly money. So if you're interested (laughs) in joining with our current patrons to keep their show running, take a look at patreon.com slash tipsy tolstoy i'm gonna applaud you for getting through not only our patrons but also another sentence in one breath oh no no no! i took i took i took a little breather i'm gonna edit that out (laughs) 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 so it sounds impressive to everyone we're revealing the magic it's fine (laughs) the music used in this episode was soviet march by toasted tomatoes you can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on youtube under the same username if you're looking for other places to find us you can also follow us on instagram at tipsy tolstoy podcast or join our email list on our website tipsytolstoy.com you'll hear from us again soon 